This podcast is all about discoveries in genomic and clinical science and ways to translate these breakthroughs into new ways to predict, diagnose, and treat disease. Not only is precision medicine changing the way diseases are treated, it's also changing how drugs are being developed and the way clinical trials are being done. On today's episode of The Pursuit of Precision, the science advancing individualized medicine, we'll dive into how some of the changes we're seeing in clinical trials can be applied to stages of the cancer continuum, including cancer prevention, early detection, and treatment. I'm Kathy Wurzer. Glad you're with us. This is going to be an excellent conversation with two noted experts. Dr. Jewel Samatter is here. He's a professor of medicine with the Mayo Clinic College of Science and Medicine and a consultant in gastroenterology and hepatology and clinical genomics. And he's the interim associate director of Mayo's Center for Individualized Medicine, Arizona. We're also honored that Dr. Ray Kurzrock is with us. She's the Chair of Precision Oncology and Associate Director of the Medical College of Wisconsin's Cancer Center, and she's the Founding Director of the Michaels Rare Cancers Research Laboratories at MCW. Welcome to both of you. It is such a pleasure. Thank you for having us today, Kathy. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Dr. Kurzrock, uh, you are known for developing one of the largest and best known phase one clinical trial programs in the US when you're working at MD Anderson. Let's begin by comparing and contrasting how clinical trials have been done for years versus the changes precision medicine is bringing to the research bench. I'm glad that you asked about that. So we developed the early phase clinical trials program starting in about 2004. I left MD Anderson actually at the end of 2012, but I I think within about five years, it was probably the largest early phase clinical trials program, uh, maybe in the world. But there was really dramatic changes happening, both in clinical trials and drug development in those years. And I think that they've really profoundly changed the way we treat cancer. So what was happening is, that uh, next generation sequencing had just been accomplished. It was still very expensive, but we were beginning to use molecular testing on patients. And we could see that there were specific mutations that existed in individual tumors. And then drug companies were beginning to develop these targeted drugs that were specifically kind of like smart missiles aimed at specific alterations. And uh, we began to match patients with these targeted drugs. Now, because these were phase one trials, by definition, that meant that they were drugs early in clinical development and all pa- the patients had failed all available therapy. So that's considered a really challenging situation for, unfortunately, for a cancer patient. But what we began to see is we began to see these responses when we match patients to a specific targeted therapy when they had the right genomic alteration. It was still early on, so the responses didn't occur that frequently, but it gave us a glimpse into the potential power of genomics and thinking about cancer in a different way, understanding the underlying biology, and then giving the patient the right drug for their specific tumor. So now, of course, we're seeing what precision medicine can do. And I'm wondering, are these next generation trials then more patient-centered in that the therapeutic agents are matched to patients based on their tumor biomarkers versus being more drug-centered? 
Well, I think we're beginning to enter that era, although we're, we haven't completed traveling on that road. During 2012, next generation sequencing, much more comprehensive sequencing, became clinical grade. Before it had been extraordinarily expensive, but now we could actually order it for patients. And at first, we were just really excited be- because before we had 15 genes and a few hot spots, but now we had hundreds of genes and we could examine the whole gene and we had so much more data. But we really quickly realized there were two issues with the data. The first was the challenge of the data, that it was so complicated. And then the second was what the data was telling us. And what the data was telling us as we began to sequence patients with these better tests, with these much more comprehensive tests, was that each metastatic tumor was complicated, didn't just have one alteration, often had multiple alterations. And furthermore, each tumor was unique. Each one was different than every other tumor. I, I We compared them to malignant snowflakes. The crystal structure of snowflakes, every snowflake is unique and every snowflake is complicated. And that's what we began to see in metastatic tumors. So this didn't really fit well into the model of clinical trials because what the science, what the genomics was telling us was that we needed to individualize our therapy to patients. And furthermore, that for patients, at least for patients with advanced disease, one drug wasn't going to be enough. But that's not the way we did clinical trials. That's not the way we did clinical practice. So now it became not just about the science, but figuring out how to reconstruct really everything that we were doing. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. So, Dr. Samatter, I want to bring you into the conversation. What do you think of the changes that precision medicine is making when it comes to clinical trials? Quite interesting, isn't it? Yes. And it's a profound change in the treatment and drug discovery, drug trials arena, and really since the mandate to eradicate cancer going back 50 years disproportionately, that movement has occurred in the last 10 years that we're really making headway. And really for the audience to understand, it changed how we do drug trials. So we went from the notion of we're gonna enroll patients all with the same type of cancer, one medication, and we're gonna randomize them, meaning they're gonna have an equal chance of getting a sugar pill, a placebo, or the active medication, and we're gonna follow them. to two different types of trials becoming more favored, which are designs called a basket study or an umbrella study. So readers or your podcast listeners are gonna hear these words. So let's take a minute just to talk about what they are. An umbrella study means we enroll patients with one type of cancer, but this cancer, as Dr. Kurzweil said, isn't really one, even though it might be all breast cancer or all metastatic colon cancer, each cancer is different at a genomic level, these alterations in the tumor. And so we can essentially, under one umbrella of cancer A, divided by molecular markers into many smaller subtrials that get multiple drugs tested on them. And a basket trial, on the opposite hand, is saying we're going to take many different types of cancer, but all of which have a singular or similar genomic alteration. 
So you may have a lung cancer, a melanoma, a colon cancer, a breast cancer, but all of these have, let's say, microsatellite instability as an example, genomic feature. And we would enroll all of those different tumor types into one trial with a drug that's targeting this genomic signature or alteration. And so we're able to run a trial like that and see at least an early signal, does that drug that is targeting one molecular alteration work better in one type of cancer or another with that molecular signature? So those are things you're gonna see much more often and it's one that the FDA is really recommending as a trial design going forward to decrease the cost of trials, the length of doing these trials and get those early wins in individualized medicine. After listening to you both, might be my question is silly, but um, is there still a role for traditional randomized drug-centered clinical trials? I, so I think that's a good question, and I don't think there's a clear-cut answer to it. With randomized controlled trials, there's no debate that the randomized controlled trial is the gold standard to eliminate bias. But now we come to a new question, because with some of these drugs, when we're actually impacting the underlying biology of the cancer, we're seeing very high response rates. And so the question that I think is the most pertinent. Is there a boundary condition under which you don't need a randomized controlled trial or a randomized controlled trial actually may even become unethical? So I think that there's room for randomized controlled trials when the benefit is not clear cut. But when there's a very large benefit to patients, uh, let's say the standard of care has a 15 or 20% response rate, and uh, the new drug has a 70% response rate, do you really need a randomized control trial under those conditions? I would say no. On the other hand, if you have a drug with a, a traditional treatment with a 20% response rate, and now you have a new drug with a 25 or 30 percent response rate, then you would still need a randomized control trial. The bottom line is with a lot of these new biologically, molecularly driven trials, we are seeing higher response rates. And I think in those cases, we should not be doing randomized controlled trials. And I'll give an excellent example of this, Kathy, which actually got a lot of media attention, which was published in the New England Journal a few months ago. It was looking at it, and it was not a traditional trial at all. It wasn't a randomized trial. It was more or less a very fancy case series, but uh, though it wasn't definitive, I think it really got people thinking of using precision treatment in a group that is genomically well-defined. So in this group, they took about 12 patients who had either Lynch syndrome or rectal cancer uh, with microsatellite instability. Lynch syndrome is an inherited genetic condition that predisposes colorectal cancer. And these patients were treated with an anti-PD-1 monoclonal antibody. And what they expected is that there would be response to treatment, but the patients would still most likely need to go on for further consolidative chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery. But what was unique is after treatment with this medication and at least six months of follow-up, these 12 patients had complete response, both endoscopic and imaging and pathologic, meaning we went back in there with a scope took biopsies, and where that tumor was, there was nothing 
left there. Even on biopsy, you couldn't find any dead or necrotic cancer cells left. Using the best imaging, MRIs, PET scanners, you couldn't find evidence of this tumor. And so though that was a small study of 12 patients, it really highlighted you need to pick the right patient, usually through a genomic approach, and the right medication, and it can have profound impact. But I'd like to hear Dr. Kurzweil's thought on that is that obviously got a lot of press attention, but whether that can be replicated and what the long-term thought of that is. Yes, I think Andrea Churchek's study in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is the one you're referring to, is an absolute breakthrough study. And it's a, a perfect example that you gave. You, you take a group of patients that don't have a great outlook and the surgery can be mutilating and you treat 12 patients and all of them go into complete remission that appears durable. Now, I know it's not a lot of patients, but do you want to do a randomized control trial? Would any one of us want to be on the control arm? I don't think so. Uh, so I think this is where what I mean, and, and you know, we have to make a decision where the boundary uh, condition is. But even with a small number of patients, 12 patients, 100% response rate, for me, that is beyond the boundary. I don't think a randomized controlled trial is indicated. I would even question whether it's ethical at that point. And I think most patients would not want to be on the control arm. Thank you, by the way, for talking to us about the basket and umbrella trials. I mean, there's also what uh, N of one and platform trials, these new trials that are coming down the pike. And I'm wondering what are the challenges or limitations of, say, the basket or umbrella trials? I think you're asking a really important question. And the limitations to me of the basket and umbrella trials are not limitations in comparison to the old way of doing things, but they're limitations in comparison to the next generation of trials. Because in the end, uh, basket and umbrella trials they're very novel in that instead of picking patients just on where the tumor originated from, you're now picking patients for the trial in part or in whole based on their underlying genomic alteration and the match to the drug that is being given that targeted that, that genomic alteration. And what we've seen is much better response rates because we're attacking the underlying biology. Basket and umbrella trials are still drug-centered trials. The drugs are at the center of the universe and we find patients that fit onto the drug. So I think the next generation of trials is what you talked about before, and that's patient-centered trials, where every patient is the center of the universe, and we match the drugs to the patient rather than vice versa. And those are N of one trials. So what that means is that we analyze the biology mostly genomics right now, but it'll be transcriptomics and other omics as we get more uh, technology available. And then we match the drugs to that patient. Uh, we individualize or customize a combination of drugs for that patient. And every patient gets a different combination of drugs because of what we said before, that each tumor is unique. So that is an N of one trial. And then 
the question that always comes up is, so how are you going to evaluate any drug combination and whether it works or not? And my answer to that is that we are no longer evaluating the drug combinations in a disease. We are evaluating the algorithm that decides on the combination. So everybody get in these patient-centered trials gets a different combination, but there's an algorithm that decides on that combination. And that's what I think in our next generation trials we're beginning to do. The last thing I'll mention is that I think we already did the first of these trials, and that was the iPredict trial that we started in 2015 at uh, University of California. We published the first readout in 2019 in Nature Medicine, and we, we've published several other papers on this, but essentially this was an N of one trial. Everybody got an individualized combination and we were able to show that the better the match, the better the patients did. Dr. Samatter, do you have anything to add to this? What fuels all of this, and Dr. Kersark mentioned it, is that the cost of next-gen sequencing has basically evaporated. It's gone from back in the 2000s, even to look at simple genes like BRCA1, BRCA2, which are the high-risk breast and ovarian cancer genes, would cost thousands of dollars to sequence them. Today, you can look, whether it's at the germline, meaning the genes you inherited from your mom or your dad, or somatic, which are the genes that compose your tumor, the mutations that led to your tumor, for several hundred dollars, definitely less than $1,000 and less than $500, you can sequence hundreds of genes completely looking for mutations, deletions, duplications, and that can be done on every patient coming in for cancer care. And I think that is something that our listeners who are, many of whom are either dealing with cancer or have a loved one dealing with cancer, need to advocate for themselves when they go see their oncologist or their surgeon that I want access to molecular precision therapies. And in order to get that, I need genomic sequencing of my blood and my tumor is that is the barrier that exists today is that if you are not at an expert cancer center, if you're from certain ethnic minority populations, you are not able to access these advances in precision therapies because you're not getting step one, which is that genomic sequencing of your blood and tumor. Even though the cost has radically changed, the uptake just isn't there. The other thing I was going to mention is all of these things we're talking about can now be brought up into cancer continuum to look at early detection as well as prevention of cancers and their precursors. And we're starting to make movement in those areas. In the prevention area, we can now use select targeted medications to patients who are identified as having a very high risk of cancer. For example, patients with Lynch syndrome or BRCA, hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndrome. We know their risk of breast, ovarian, colon cancer is well above 80%. There, it makes, makes sense to give them a medical therapy, a targeted therapy that can prevent or reduce the risk of developing cancer altogether. And then finally, in detection, this is probably the area that will be supercharged with the cancer moonshot funding that's coming in over the next one year, that 
can we detect cancer at its earliest stage anywhere in the body using a blood sample, a sputum sample, a stool sample that can screen you for not just one, but 10, 20, maybe more cancers and can be repeated with a minimally invasive access uh, of sample. There, the big unknown is, does it work? There are companies that have already launched products, but do these things work? You covered a lot of different bases there, doctor. So I want to back up for just a moment here and go back to something that uh, you touched on it just ever so briefly, germline versus somatic testing. You you led the intercept study, if I'm not mistaken, at Mayo Clinic, which offered germline genetic testing to patients newly diagnosed with cancer. Is that right? Absolutely. That was one of the first large-scale studies to say, let's democratize genetics within cancer. So instead of the traditional model where you would have a cancer patient come into the practice, the oncologist or surgeon would need to think, well, is there a red flag here of something that could be hereditary? Now let's refer the patient to the genetics clinic and genetic counselor. The patient is already overwhelmed with appointments for oncology, infusion, ports, surgeon, radiation oncology, to have another appointment for genetic testing and then waiting four weeks for those results. What we did was we got rid of that bottleneck. We had it that as the patient walked into the oncology practice, we offered them genetic sequencing through a blood sample for about 80 plus cancer genes, which was the largest panel at that time. We removed the barrier of that genetics consultation. We had the patient watch a video at that time on an iPad and more recently electronically through an emailed link that educated them about germline genetic testing, some of the aspects medically, legally that they needed to know about implications for health and life and disability insurance. And what we found is, A, over 95% of the patients we approached agreed to undergo germline genetic sequencing with the education we provided. 15% had actionable pathogenic or mutations that led to disease. And about a third of the time, we could see changes in their treatment, either in surgical management, for example, a a young woman with breast cancer undergoing a double mastectomy because they had a BRCA mutation instead of just a lumpectomy. The use of certain PD-1 or other monoclonal antibody therapies for patients with Lynch syndrome-associated cancer. So in 30% of the cases, we changed treatment. And even amongst the patients that had these genetic alterations, 60% of the time, we would have missed them had we used a typical criteria called NCCN that allows us for referral to a genetics clinic. Can I ask you both, by the way, when we talk about germline and somatic genetics, how are they incorporated into into clinical trials since we're talking about clinical trials at this point? Yeah, so I think probably not well enough. I think the headway has really been made with uh, somatic testing where you're testing the tumor, but you're not testing normal tissue to see if it has the alteration, which makes it hereditary. I think we have a lot more trials now that incorporate operate somatic testing to match patients with drugs. I think the intercept study was really a breakthrough study and incorporating germline testing, I think has lagged behind other than what was done with the intercept study. The next step in my view is really universal genomic testing should be reflex testing for somatic alterations 
because the uh, genomics is the diagnosis. It's not just about the pathology, which tells us what's where the cells came from, whether they came from the colon or lung or, or breast. We want to know the genomics, what is wrong in that tumor. But to go further, it's been my strong belief that we need germline testing on all patients, provided the patients agree. As was mentioned, it can alter how we're going to treat those patients. That's number one. And number two is there is no question that there is at least a third and maybe more tumors that or patients that I, I joke that the the tumor or the patient didn't read the books and that they're not supposed to have a germline alteration. We've seen this so many times that according to the book, they're not supposed to have a germline alteration, but they do. And it's not just a one-off, a rare occurrence. It's at least a third, maybe more patients. That's a huge amount number of patients that are really not being adequately worked up and don't have enough information for them to make decisions for themselves or even to get the best therapy for their cancer. So I think that we're very close to the point in time where both somatic and germline testing should be automatic with for all patients that have cancer. And I think what's going to do this, uh, Kathy, is expert cancer centers like Mayo, MD Anderson, MCW, we're going to have to take the lead and just institute this as part of the standard of treatment approach that if you are a cancer patient, especially if you have an advanced cancer diagnosis and you're coming to these expert cancer centers, that you have a unified universal cancer genomic testing, a piece of your tumor and a sample of your blood is gonna be sent. You're gonna be educated obviously before that about the implications of genomic sequencing. But uh, once you sign that consent, then a sample of your tumor and blood at that same time is gonna be sent to a testing lab those results are going to be returned in real time within 10 or 14 days. That return has to be quick enough such that the oncologists and surgeons can make their plan of how this is going to allow a patient to have customized or individualized therapy or surgery. Possibly radiation therapy in the future could be individualized. And definitely, then what are the implications for their family members if there is a germline result? That's actually one thing we didn't mention is one of the benefits of germline testing is if you have one of these genetic mutations, which 15% of cancer patients do, it's not just you. Your children, your siblings have a 50-50 chance of having that same genomic alteration in their blood and having a risk of one or more cancers, just like you did. Sometimes you can't prevent the cancer you already have and you may not beat it, but you probably very much not want your son or daughter to have that same diagnosis if you could avoid it. We in this podcast series are talking about a lot of different things and we have a future episode coming up about cancer vaccines, but I think it's worth touching on the trials right now that are leading to precision prevention strategies. Could we just address briefly here, chemo prevention and cancer vaccine trials? Where are you both on that? What are you watching for, say, in the, in the future when it comes to those two items? So I can take a stab at this and then Dr. Herzog can add, you know, chemo prevention has come a long way. I think we went from a notion, you know, 10 years ago that we would be able to find some magic pill 
some magic medication that we could give to everybody and reduce the risk of developing colon polyps or breast cancer, at least amongst the common cancers. Unless you can find a pill that has the risk, the side effect profile of water, it doesn't really work. So we've moved that field forward to let us use chemo prevention a medication that can prevent the development of cancer or cancer precursors in those at greatest risks. So chemo prevention is the use of a medication to reduce the development of cancer or cancer precursors. In the past, we thought that we could find uh, such a magic pill that would reduce the risk of developing breast cancer, colon cancer across the entire population. Fortunately, that doesn't work unless you had a medication with the side effect profile of water. Every medication has some toxicity. And when you apply it to large populations, it just doesn't work like that. Where we have gone is a more targeted approach where we pick patients at the highest risk of developing cancer. So those with a germline genetic alteration, such as Lynch syndrome or hereditary breast and ovarian cancer or familial adenomatous polyposis. These patients, the risk of cancer is between 80 and 100%. Utilizing a medication, often a low-dose chemotherapeutic, may outweigh the risks of having that cancer. And so we've seen significant wins in the Lynch syndrome arena with the use of high-dose aspirin, which can reduce the risk of colon and uterine cancer by an FAP, familial adenomatous polyposis, which uh, has a 100% risk of developing colorectal cancer. We used a lower dose of an EGF receptor inhibitor. So this is a chemotherapeutic medication, but it was able to reduce the risk of duodenal cancer by about 30% in those patients. Finally, in terms of vaccines, the greatest work here is probably in the breast cancer space and again in the Lynch syndrome colon cancer space. Turns out these tumors have a number of neoantigens or little abnormal parts that they showcase even at the earliest point of tumor or pre-tumor formation. If we can create a vaccine that supercharges your immune system to go after those early cancer cells because of those antigens they're exposing, we may have a win. And so there is a trial going on right now that is using a National Cancer Institute developed vaccine for patients with Lynch syndrome that's enrolling across the United States. And there are similar vaccine studies being performed in breast cancer patients as well. Dr. Kurzweil, your thoughts? No, I agree with everything that you've said. I think that one of the challenges for treating healthy people is this balance between drugs that all have some sort of side effects. As you said, nothing is uh, side effect free versus preventing the cancer. Do you get overall increased survival? And I think that's where the rubber is going to hit the road, where we're going to have to see, do we not only prevent the cancer, do we prolong survival? And I agree completely that the best place for us to be looking is it in people at high risk for cancer. So it's much more challenging to do this in a general population, two thirds of whom will never get cancer versus a population where we know that the risk might be near 100% to get cancer, where we understand the underlying uh, biology. And furthermore, where these cancers are often occur early in life. So they're not cancers that occur when you're 75 or 85 years old. They often occur appear in young adults or 
even earlier. Uh, so I think that's really the perfect, the sweet spot where we can make the biggest impact. And then the technology is really moving forward very quickly with vaccines. We're really beginning to understand which mutations are translated into new antigens that the immune system might not recognize or might recognize and how that needs to be individualized because each individual has a different way of recognizing certain mutations or certain neoantigens. So the appearance of a cancer in one individual but not in the other may simply be because of a difference in the way their immune system works. And now there are very sophisticated algorithms that really can figure that out in an individual patient, which mutations, which translate into neoantigens, may be very well presented to the immune system, so we don't have to worry about them, and which mutations or neoantigens may be poorly accessible to the immune system. So those are the ones that that particular patient needs to be immunized against. So this is information that was really almost unimaginable a decade ago. Certainly 20 years ago, it was completely unimaginable to be able to do what we can do now in figuring this out. You know, um, I try to end every episode on more of a personal note. And the question I have for both of you is, what's most exciting about your work right now? I would say it is seeing the fruition of genomics coming into everyday cancer care, and especially this newfound approach of multi-cancer early detection. Can we use something as simple as a blood sample to screen you for 10 or 20 cancers? And how will that era develop. Dr. Kurzrock? So I'm more in the field of treating patients with established cancers. And the thing that is most exciting to me is by matching patients to the right drugs, whether they're gene-targeted drugs or immune-targeted drugs, we sometimes see patients that have a lethal aggressive cancer and they go into complete remission, and those remissions are long-term. I wish we could say that we could do that for every cancer. But again, we see it often enough now that again we couldn't imagine that we could do this for patients 10 or 20 years ago. So it's very rewarding when it happens. And we can also see the future that as this knowledge grows, which it is doing extremely quickly, that we're going to be able to do this for more and more patients, have patients come in with a lethal aggressive disease that was formerly untreatable. And just by giving them the right drugs, we can treat them. And sometimes I'm scared of the word cure as an oncologist, but I now have a whole stable of patients that we treated five, six years ago. They were hospice bound and now they're still in complete remission. I think they're cured. Now, I don't wanna give the impression it's everybody because I don't wanna hype it, 
But again, we couldn't do this 20 years ago for solid tumor patients, at least. So I think we understand that we're on the right road. That is amazing. You know, I so appreciate your time. I know both of you are so very busy. It was really a wonderful conversation. Thank you so very much. Really good conversation, really good guests. We've been talking to Dr. Jules Samatter of the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona, and Dr. Ray Kurzrock from the Medical College of Wisconsin's Cancer Center. We've been talking about the development and implementation of clinical trials. Thank you for listening to the Pursuit of Precision, the Science Advancing Individualized Medicine. If you have questions or comments about what you heard today, do send us an email. It is precisionpod, P-O-D, precisionpod, at mayo.edu. And for goodness sakes, follow us wherever you get your podcasts. We will have future conversations about a number of different topics in precision medicine. If you have questions or comments about what you heard today, do send us an email. It is precisionpod, P-O-D, precisionpod, at mayo.edu. And for goodness sakes, follow us wherever you get your podcasts. We will have future conversations about a number of different topics in precision medicine. I'm Kathy Werzer. Until next time, here's to your health and well-being.